from that dramatic reading, let me share with you that those words were the last words that probably Jesus spoke to the crowd and having his disciples and the Pharisees and all those together. And he went from that point to the Mount of Olives. And when he went there, he began to speak. And what we're going to look at is Matthew 23 through chapter 25. And some of you may have thought that uh, we finished Matthew. But what you didn't know is that when we were going through Matthew, we didn't cover this section in order to get to the point of Easter and having things line up. So this is perfect to come back to this because what Jesus is doing is he's coming to this point where he's, he's actually making this statement to those Leaders and religious leaders and this Jewish faith, which has brought the Messiah and then going to kind of help them understand that there's this newness, this new covenant that's actually come and that all things will be renewed. So that's what we're going to look at in these next few weeks. Let's bow our heads and hearts before the Lord. Father, we pray that you would allow for the words that you had said through Jesus, your son, that uh, as you spoke and uh you said some really hard things there. God, I pray that as we listen to this, we wouldn't just focus our eyes on someone else or back then, that we would be able to see our own hearts and that you would give us an understanding of both your word and what you want to say to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You know, Jesus, the brother of James, uh, J- James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, uh, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. You can find that in the letter of James. In a sense, he's saying this is good religion. This is the kind of faith that God our Father approves. The kind of faith that loves the weak and vulnerable and remains unstained by the world, which is this word cosmos, which means cosmetics. This, this idea of the superficial life that seeks to, to live and control and is, is, is really living according to the things that you do naturally in your own flesh and through your own strength. That's good religion. So what's bad religion? What would your guess be? I you think for a second, maybe uh, put a few adjectives in your mind. Of what, what is bad religion? What would, what would be a couple of words that you might use to describe it? Well, let me share with you what a current writer named Ross Duthat, he I think is an evangelical Catholic, has written a very thoughtful and insightful book. And the title of his book is Bad Religion, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. And he writes something very interesting. He says, America's problem isn't too much religion or too little of it. It's bad religion. The slow-motion collapse of traditional Christianity and the rise of a variety of destructive pseudo-Christianities in its place. And this is true for Catholics and Protestants alike. And he then examines all that happened in the last number of years and where we're at today. And he says the divinely inspired word ends up being, you know, many people can see different ways in which it's interpreted. But what happens is it's just an either-or kind of a choice. And as a result, the Jesus of the New Testament, whose paradoxical mix of qualities and commandments presents a challenge to every theology and faction. It's been replaced in the hearts and minds of many Americans with a more congenial figure, a choose-your-own Jesus, 
who better fits their own preconception about what a savior should or shouldn't be. And that's a trial. That's what can happen to all of us. We kind of kind of look at this in God's word and we and we don't keep the mystery and the paradoxes of, of what's said, but keep us in balance and keep us humble. In fact, he goes on, he says, bad religion sets out to be simple and more appealing and more rational, but it often ends up being more extreme, whereas orthodoxy, true orthodoxy, is distinguished by its commitment to mystery and paradox. The Christian tradition is uniquely comfortable preaching dogmas that can seem like riddles, offering answers that swiftly lead to further questions, and confronting believers with the possibility that truth about God, the truth about God passes all understanding. Enforces a sense of humility. Because how is Jesus both divine and human? And how is he three, God three in one, and omnipotent and omniscient, yet leaves us free will? And how is the world corrupted by original sin, yet also essentially good? And the spirit of paradox and mystery and our corresponding humility, he says, is essential to good religion. I don't know what you think about that. But as I read through, there's some very, very thoughtful things and insightful things. You know, Jesus spoke about bad religion. He actually, in his day, before he went to the cross, he spoke about the corruption that he found in his church and among the religious leaders. In Matthew 23, which we just heard, is this long litany of things that are, in a sense, indictments against the kind of religion, the kind of faith that they were generating. And so this whole passage of Matthew 23 is really, a, it's a judgment, but it's a judgment that calls people to a renewed heart. It's all about this newness of heart that Jesus was hoping would happen between one another and also with God. And it's amazing how quickly we can take our faith and we can begin to use it for our own gain. And as he speaks these words, it's pretty, pretty interesting that Jesus, you know, you think of the things he said as he looked at the crowd and he pointed out the Pharisees and religious leaders and he said, you hypocrites. And he looked them in the eye. I mean, talk about putting the last nail in your coffin or maybe in your cross. That's what he did. Matthew 23, verse one, Jesus says he's been teaching in the temple area. He's been teaching for that day. He's kind of that final time that he's going to stand before the people before he goes off and retreats and goes, takes the Passover meal and then is brought before Pilate and in the priests and the Sanhedrin. It says that Jesus said to the crowds, verse one of chapter 23, and he said to the disciples. He gives them these final thoughts. He says in verse 2, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. He starts out pretty good. You, you hold the authority of Moses' seat. They're, they're saying, yeah, that's right. We, we are in that place. And he says this, so you must obey them and do everything they tell you. And then he says, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Bottom line is they're hypocrites. They don't do what they tell you to do. And you know what's interesting is people don't realize, because a lot of times they'll say at the church, you know, one of the reasons we don't like faith or religion or the church is because it's just filled with hypocrites. Well, you think it's interesting is Jesus hated hypocrites. I mean, he, he looked at these people and, and he, he repeated again and again, woe to you, teachers of the law, Pharisees. And then he would say, you hypocrites. In a sense, woe is a sense that you, you're heading towards damnation. That's how strong that term is. 
So in chapter 23, verse 13, he says it. In verse 15, he says it. In verse 23, he says it. In verse 25, he says it. says it in verse 27. says it in verse 29. He kind of capsulizes it in verse 28, where he says, You appear as righteous, but in the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. What I think is interesting as you read this passage of Scripture, one of the things I want to share with you is some identifiable marks of what I believe is bad religion. You can spot bad religion by these identifiable marks. I think Jesus puts those out there. But what I want to make sure as we go through this is that you don't kind of go, oh, yeah, so-and-so. These identifiable marks are, are not something that, that are just way out there. They're things that spring up in our heart. They're so subtle. They're so We don't even notice it in over time you find that you're farther and farther from the genuineness of the faith that God has called you to through Jesus. So here are these, these identifiable marks. In fact, some of you, if you think about it, you, you look hard enough or you examine it thoroughly enough, or maybe you've been in it long enough, you'll kind of, as I go through, go, yeah, I, I remember. I was in a situation like that. Or maybe I'm in this kind of context right now in some way. The first mark that I would call your attention to is in verses 1 through 4. And, and really bad religion is this. It's it's all about me. That's the mark. You get up there and, and, and those who are in leadership and those who um, are um, expressing their faith. It's not really about you. It's, it's really not about love. It's it's all about me, although they would never say that because they love to talk about their concern for the poor and the vulnerable. But it's all just talk. In fact, they may even do some things for them, but they're doing it is all still about them or about me. Verse 4, Jesus says, they tie up heavy loads and they put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. He's talking about a whole system of faith, a whole religious kind of expression that what it does is it talks about these things and, and it begins a system which forces people into this kind of performance-based relationship with one another and with God, so much so that the way that you are in with, with God and you're in with other people is through the things that you do. And, and when they do this, they put this on the backs of people in such an extent that they do nothing to, to untie those burdens. In fact, all they do is they give it more and more. Verses 2 and 3, Jesus says about the law. He says, you know, the law isn't a bad thing. In fact, they sit in the authority of, of, of the teaching of Moses, and they actually tell you to do the law. So the law, and I've said this throughout a number of times when I've preached, the law, when you go back to the ten laws, is the bare minimums for a good society where you have good relationships. It reveals the heart and will of God that he would love for there to be relational intimacy and trust and the development of relationships where people really can grow and develop and mature and, and get close to one another. And he just gives you the bare minimums. He's trying to take some children of Israel and make them into adults. And he says, here's just some basic things. It'd be really good that you don't murder someone. You don't steal don't take another person's wife. You know, those are the bare minimums. And so Jesus is saying the things that were set up in the law were really good things. But he goes on to say how they use that law is what distinguishes that mark. And the mark underneath is that it's about me. To those who didn't measure up, those who couldn't follow the law the way that they followed the law, where they, would, they were um, 
using all kinds of things to appear and to be righteous before others. Those people, when Jesus would go to those pe- the people who had been broken and knew that they couldn't measure up and they couldn't perform, when Jesus would come, they wasn't, when he would tell them about the fact that God sees their heart, he knows them, he knows their situation, he knows their sin, he knows exactly how far they are from God, and he goes, guess what? Good news, you of all people are blessed because God loves you. This is not about you. This is a religion, in a sense. This The good part of this is that it's all about God and his love for you. And it was great news. It was great news. And Jesus approaches to the religious leaders because what happens in the hearts of those who appear to be in positions of leadership begins to filter itself always down into the community. And so Jesus was in a time as he's speaking to religious leaders that had a community that had been infected by this. And it had done so in this degree that there were those who were in and accepted by God and those who weren't. And Jesus came and he spoke to those who felt far from God. And he said, guess what? You're far closer to God than they are. And yet, the mark of bad religion, it's all about me. Now think about it for a second. It's such a subtle thing. We get that way all the time in our life. We even in our own faith, we have this relationship. We, we believe we're in relationship with God. And usually it's not about God. It's not about others. It's all about me, right? It's a kind of thing Oh God, you, know, you go to God and, and, and you go through the day and you're just expecting God to bless you and things don't go the way you want them to do. And what, it's all about who? It's real easy to get upset instead of realizing that, you know, when you go through a trial, you go through a situation, it's not really about you. It may be that God is allowing you to go through this, that he's doing something in you, but he's also doing something through you to someone else. When you come into a church, in a place of worship, it's really interesting. You can come in and, and instead of saying, God, here, this is all about you today. This is what I want to give to you. I want to engage. I want to get to see someone. I want to, I, I'm not just going to look for my friends, but I'm actually maybe look for whoever you might want me to bless. And this, you can do this throughout your whole life. My life is, God, how can I do this? How can I keep my life focused on you and others in love? And you can come into a place like this and you can go through the service and go, you know, that wasn't, you know, I didn't really like the way Joel did this. I didn't like the way Kevin did that. And I wasn't really, you know, you can go through all those. I don't like the way this looks. You know, you can have all those kind of things going on. I find it really interesting. I've been meeting with a group of of young leaders over the spring. These guys, um, a, a number of guys. And at one point as we were meeting together, I asked them, you know, why did you start attending YZETA Free? And they were going around the room. And, and one, of the, one of the individuals um, said, you know, he had been here just about a couple of years now. He said, you know, we looked at other churches. We went to other churches. We found some other churches where there are more people our age than there are here. We found some other churches where, we, you know, there's some things we really preferred and maybe in some ways could fit really well. He said, but as we began to pray about it, we prayed really hard. And as we prayed about it, we said, you know, what became clear to us is here is a place at Wyzetta that we could have maybe the greatest impact. And I thought, wow, I've heard this now from a couple different couples as they're seeking to understand, God, where do you want me? Which is, it's not about me. It's about you. It's about how can I be used and serve. Another mark is in verses 5 through 7. It's all for show. Verse 5 is interesting as it begins. It says, everything they do is done for men to see. It's external. It's not about the heart. In fact, the heart becomes removed in the process. That's what happens as you start moving through this kind of subtle process. What happens is, is, is it, it's what it appears to other people. And what you look for is the applause and the, and the pat on the back from others. 
In fact, it says here in chapter 23, verse 5, everything they do is done for men to see. And then he gives some examples. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels of their prayer shawls long. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. And they love to be greeted in the marketplace and have men call them rabbi. For those kind of things like phylacteries, they were basically little boxes. And these little boxes were either made out of leather or some kind of parchment. And in that parchment, there was a little vellum. There was this kind of this little piece of uh, manuscript. They, they would write maybe four texts from the Old Testament, and they'd wear these on their, on their head or on their, on their arms. And as they would walk around, people would go, wow, that's spiritual. Or they'd wear these shawls, and they would get these shawls, and the longer the tassels could be in the shawls, it was the, you know, people would look at them and go, wow, they must be really pious. And then he goes on, and he says not only do they, they do that, but when it comes to the places of, uh, where they go to a place, and if there's a place of honor, they, they want to be. In fact, they move towards that place because that's a place of recognition that people can see them, where they sit in those important places. And then when they go out into the street, they're looking for people to notice them. And they're saying, hey, you know, they like to be called pastor, or they like to be, oh, you're a Bible study leader, whatever it might be, whatever kind of title it is, that's what they're looking for. It's all about show. So it's all about me. It's all about show. They're addicted to approval. And then he goes on and he says in verses 8 through 12, it's all about power. It's really interesting. When you think about bad religion, when you want to spot the identifiable marks of what bad religion really is, it's all about power. He says, but as you, you're not to be called rabbi, verse 8. For you have only one master and you have, you're all brothers, says in the, the translation that was, was used here for that dramatic reading. We're all classmates. We're all on the same level with one another. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he's in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Messiah, the Christ. Now, Jesus is not against titles. It's not a kind of thing where you're not supposed to have titles, you know, and so, you know, it's not, you know, some of those kind of places they try and get rid of titles. Titles are good and bad. Sometimes titles keep you from a more intimate relationship, and so they drop them. Ever, you know, as a kid, when you grew up, some of you grew up saying Mr. and Mrs., right? And then when you got to your 20 years of age and you had to drop the Mr. and Mrs., you get called them by their first name. It was really awkward, right? It's this idea that you're mature, you're a little close, you can call me by my first name. See, he's not against titles. He, the, we understand titles. What he's against here is the fact that they love to use their authority. They love the title that they had because the title put them in a place of power so that through their words and through what they did and through what they taught and through how they related to them, they could control and manipulate people. They would use guilt and they would use shame. They would use all kinds of ways and methods to get what they wanted. Whatever that might be. And so Jesus says, you know, if you really are the kind of person who's in this position, a place of power, you need to realize it's not about power. It's about serving. So that's why he ends this little part in verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you will be your servant for whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Let's remember again, those in positions of leadership are called to one. It's not about me. Secondly, it's not about show. And third, it's not about power and control. And in a sense, what Jesus is saying is something that we need to hear in our day and age. And that's this, that every person here who has opened their heart to God in a faith relationship through Christ has been given the Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, with God's word, 
through the Holy Spirit and the good mind he's given you and then the relationships you have with other mature people, you have what you need to help you understand the will of God. There is no person here who should become a disciple of another teacher. I always get a little nervous when I begin to see someone and, and, and they're just everything that person says and they become almost in a sense, you know, it's okay for a period of time when you're younger and you're growing. But the reality is what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I'm the one who sits in the seat of authority of Moses, which was really hard for these Pharisees and religious leaders to buy. They didn't buy it at all. But that's what he's saying at this point. I'm the one who sits in this authority. And if you want to know what it means to live in relationship with God, then you can come to me and I am your teacher and the father in heaven is your only father. And so he makes it really clear. Mentors are great gifts, but they're never to be a father in the exclusive sense. Teachers are wonderful and helpful, but they're never to be the teacher. In fact, this was Paul's criticism in his letter to the Corinthian church. He says, listen to what he says. I could not address you as spiritual, but worldly. Again, worldly, this idea, they were caught in the systems of the world. They couldn't live at a spiritual level where they were beginning to love and to serve and to do do those things. So I had to address you as worldly. Mere infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food. You're still worldly. For since there's, this is one of the marks of worldliness. There's jealousy and quarreling among you. Are you not worldly? Are you not acting like just mere men or people? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Paulus, are you not mere men? You see, you're not supposed to be saying, well, this is the person. I'm a disciple of this or a disciple of that. You are to use your mind and your heart, your mind which God has given you with his word, and your heart to begin to discern what God wants. Look at for a second, if you would. He says, I gave you milk and solid food. Not solid food. Now, think about it for a second. When you think of milk and you think of taking that in and you think of an infant, basically milk is a pretty easy thing to get nutrients from, right? You don't have to do a whole lot. It, it, milk provides the nutrients. And so his point here is there's a difference between milk and solid food. And a lot of times people say, well, that meant, well, he couldn't give you the deeper teachings of, the, of, of God. I don't think that's exactly what Paul is getting at here. I think he's saying, similar to Christ, he's saying, look, it, there is a point that what you need to do is solid food. Think about it. What is solid food uh, causes for you to participate and engage? You, in order to get the nutrients from solid food, from meat, you have to do what? You chew. You don't give those to infants, right? But as you begin to mature, you begin to be able to chew so that you can get the nutrients. And what he's basically saying is, listen, folks, you need to understand that with God's word and with this relationship with, with, with me, you can begin to move into a place where you can begin to take God's word and hear God's word and begin to yourself draw the nutrients from it. And that is something every believer should do. And so that will keep you from coming to this place where you put yourself under someone instead of Christ himself. And so often it's so easy. I mean, you hear so often people say, well, I was going to this place and I just wasn't being fed. And I go, you know what? We got to grow up. There is a point and there's some truth to that kind of thing. But the reality is you are responsible, is what Jesus is saying, is to come to him directly and begin to find feeding through your own participation and engagement. Let me just give you an illustration that I think might help you understand this. 
You see, when, when kids are infants, we kind of expect them just to drink milk, right? And then at a certain point, you want to start to move them to a little more solid food. So what you do is you begin to take the little, whatever that orange mustardy looking stuff is, and you take the little spoon, and you, you've got to almost entice them to open their mouth to eat, right? If they could, they would stay on the bottle the whole time. So you sit there and you'd make the little airplane. You know, I, I used to love this part as a dad. I would think I'd do trains, I'd do all these things, and I'd love to go by their mouth and, you know, that kind of thing. But eventually you, you, you get it in their mouth and then they begin to eat, and then eventually they get to the point where you're cutting their meat and they're, and they're taking that steak or meat that they're eating and they're chewing on it, and, they're be, and eventually that's the process. Now think about it a second. You, as a parent, have your 20-year-old come back from college. What's wrong with this picture? You take, you know, the knife and the fork, and you take the meat, and you start cutting it up for them. Anybody doing that still? And then you take the fork, and you kind of get it, and you go to your 20-year-old. In God's church, there are just lots of people that never move into maturity because they never take responsibility for getting what they need to get in relationship with God. All these things, worship and preaching and all the things that happen with the church are things to help assist us in our growth. But the reality is when Jesus stands before him and he says this, he's saying, you know what bad religion's about? Bad religion's about, it's all about me. So some people never grow beyond the sense of infancy because infancy is all about me. And beyond that, it's all about what? Show and appearance. And beyond that, it's all about controlling people so that you can get them to do what you want. And the best way to control people is to control information. If you control that and you control that... You've got them. And Jesus is saying, guess what? I have come and I'm calling you to me personally to move into maturity by taking responsibility for your growth. And then he goes on and he says, here's another thing that you'll see often in what I call bad religion. It's all about laws. Now, if you look at chapter 23, 13 through 32, and you look at the time, you're probably thinking, how in the world is he going to go through all this? I'm not. And you're probably happy. But we're going to look at this in an overview of what is going on. It's really important when you study the Word of God that you understand that, that the Word of God is made up of different literary genres, which means there's poetry, there's parables, there's narrative, there's history. You, you can go through and you begin. You need to know what the genre is, that, the type of literature. And so when they come to this part in chapter 23, we don't get it because we didn't live with this literary genre. But this is a genre that is, is basically called a chiasm. It's the idea it takes it and they would hear it where it builds this chiastic structure and I'll share this in a minute but I'm sharing this with you because as we get into chapter 24 you need to understand also that language is apocalyptic language. In fact often it's called chapter 24 the little apocalypse. We need to understand what that is in order to rightly study God's word. It's important that we understand these things. So when we come to this one of the things I like about this little chiasm, it, it makes it easy for me to teach this. Because you read through these, it's, you kind of read through, there's just a ton of laws going on here. And there's some great points being made about how hypocritical these Pharisees and religious teachers are. 
But the chiasm goes like this, and they would see it. There's first the woe, verse 13. You don't have verse 14 in some of your translations because it was in the earliest manuscripts of Matthew. It wasn't there. They believe that maybe a scribe at some point put it kind of as a footnote because they were trying to explain this, um, what was said in Mark or one of the other chapter books. And so what they in some manuscripts, verse 14 comes before 13, some after. Most believe that it probably wasn't in the, very, in the writing of Matthew itself. So verse 13, woe number two. And you see how they build verse 15, woe number three, 16 through 22. All of them moving to woe number four, pointing that direction. That's why I put the exclamation point in 23 and verse 24. And then they begin to move back to five, six, and seven. And, and just so you kind of, I'll just kind of give you this quickly. They, they kind of have this chiastic structure. So one and seven relate in the sense that they are both about the Messiah or the recognition of a God through his people. Verse uh, number two and, and six relate in the sense that they're both superficially zealous, yet they do more harm than good. Well, three and five relate. They're both mis guided use of scripture until it comes to number four, which is different than all of them. And the reason that Matthew does this structure is so that we will focus, in a sense, on fourth, the fourth woe. And when you read it, it's interesting. The entire thrust of Scripture is, in a sense, in this verse. Because he says you do all these little things that are non-essential and you miss the essential point of why God has given you his word and why he comes in his spirit through me the Christ, the Messiah, and it is to promote justice and mercy and faithfulness. Remind you of any other passage? There's a passage in the Old Testament scripture that says in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, What does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? You, you, you can bet when he was doing this, they were getting this message. He was basically saying, you make your whole religion about a bunch of laws and about a bunch of non-essential stuff so that you can get in this place where you can control people by those things and then by those things you kind of appear righteous and it's all show in order that it's all about you. And he says, you know what? From start to finish, this is all about a relationship with God who comes through you in justice and and comes before you with mercy and that expects a sense of humility i love the way it's written in the message how can i stand up before god and show proper respect to the high god should i bring an armload of offerings topped off with yearly calves would god be impressed with thousands of rams with buckets and barrels of olive oil but he's already made it plain how to live and what to do see see how this fits into what jesus is saying What God is looking for in men and women is quite simple. Do what's fair and just to your neighbor. Be compassionate and loyal in your love. And he says, and to walk in a place of humility before God. You see, God always meant the laws to lead us to love. And one of the things about the Ten Commandments that's really interesting is that Jesus went through it and he said to those people who thought they were keeping the Ten Commandments, he said, you know, in the area of adultery, you know, you may have not committed adultery, but in your heart, if you just lost, you've done it. You may have not committed murder, but if you do it in your heart, it's hate. 
And when you begin to understand this, that you're to live with, with justice and mercy and, and this faithful kind of humility before all people, you begin to realize that when you try to follow the law like they were trying to follow, you either have to be in denial and living in complete pride and self-promotion, or you're like the other people who recognize that they just couldn't measure up, they just couldn't do it, they were forced. You see, the law forces you to a place where you bend your knees in humility because you recognize that once again, I missed a mark, or once again, I stood up in rebellion and I, and I stood against you, God, and I, I, I hurt my neighbor, or I, the, my wife, I, I, you know, I put her in a position where she's feeling pain, or I, I, I put my kids in a place where I, once again I used them for my own whatever it might be. At work, I did it again. I, I, I lied in order to look better. Whatever it might be, you come to this place and you recognize, I just can't measure up. And you're humbled by it. The whole purpose of the law is to promote justice, mercy, and this sense of humility that you walk humbly with God. And these guys aren't doing this. That's what bad religion always does. It promotes a self-justification. It promotes a sense of pride. It causes you to walk away from the very God who wants to be in relationship with you. But when you begin to get a heart that is no longer living in denial, and you begin begin to see yourself, you can't but help be broken by the law, come into humility, and then in humility begin to ask for mercy, and then you stand before a holy and just God because justice is on his heart. And you go, how in the world can I come before this God? I'm asking for mercy and humility. And he says, Jesus says, in just a few days, what I do on the cross takes all your sins and justice is taken care of. This God of justice accepts you and receives you into his heart. We're called to love God. And I, I, these woes, when you read through these woes, there's seven of them. And again, in, in, in the Hebrew mind, that's important. New, numbers are important. Seven of them means there's a sense of completion. And so Jesus is doing something again that they very much understand. This chiastic structure with it is a sense of, it's almost like every woe is like one of those paddles, you know, on a, on a heart, these defibrillators. Every one of those woes are like one of those paddles to try and renew the heart. Every one of them to try and wake them up that they might have a heart that's open to God. That they might wake up our own heart. That we might recognize that we start living in any... In, in here, I'll make it really simple. Bad religion is about all this stuff that we do. Good religion is about a relationship. It's always about Relationships. Think about it for a second. Just use a different, a different word. Relationships are always about what? How that you live in, in relationship with another. It, it's not about you, but it's about understanding and viewing the other person and, and coming under understanding of that person. It's, a, it's, it's not about doing things so that you look good, so that your heart can be hidden, but maybe you, you, know, you all do that, don't we? You know, you, you, you try and... You know, I could say to my wife, look, I did this or that. And, you know, but it doesn't mean their heart's close. And it's all about then control and manipulation. And so he's basically saying, if you want a relationship with God and you want a relationship with other people, you've got to recognize these marks that destroy it. And in a sense, he comes to the seventh one and it's boom again. And he now makes it really clear. God himself has shown up and you guys like snakes and vipers are refusing to hear it. Every time God shows up, you you lynch him and you put him to death. And guess what? In a few moments, you'll do the same to me. And he looks out and he cries out 
out of compassion and love if only you would have a new heart and move into relationship with God. I just ask you to take a moment and just um, bow your head with me, would you, in prayer? Father, it is so easy to walk in denial and to live in a way that we refuse to see how bad religion becomes a part of our lives. But, Father, our deep desire is to be in relationship with you, to learn how to humbly come in and and trust you and to move to this place where our heart is open and humble and soft before you. So, Lord, we pray that you would... Um, Reveal and help us to see those things that get in the way of our life and relationship with you and others. And we open our hearts to you in Christ's name. Amen.